Val, not in treatment. I won't talk about money again, but think. An apartment as big as you want. Charge accounts. Mr. Lickett, put your assets away. You don't have enough. Try me. You couldn't match what I've already turned down. A 180-foot yacht in French Riviera, Van Gogh's in every room, genuine type Van Gogh's, paid for by this man with pocket money, annuities for life, jewelry. You turn this down? Flatly. Why? I earn my living modeling clothes like this. Oh, I wish I had a tape recorder. Command performances leave me quite cold. Had more fun in the back seat of a 39 Ford than I could ever have in the vault of the Chase National Bank. Now I get it. You pick the man. He doesn't pick you. Finally. Why I'm not teaching logic at Columbia, I'll never know. You're listening to episode 76 of Sassmouth Dames Podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. If American men didn't know about escort services, they sure did after they went to see Butterfield 8. Publicity gimmicks installed in cinemas all over the country simulated hiring a sex worker. Here's the paradox of the Hollywood studio system. Officially, anything sexual could not be shown and had to be punished, but the flip side was the publicity machine used all the naughty bits to draw you in. The production code administration officials who monitored production of Butterfield 8 had a clear agenda, downplay the sex. Memos from Jeffrey Spurlock, who began working in the Hayes office in 1932, described the challenge for modern-day censors. During the 19th century, he wrote, women who sinned died at the end, women such as Madame Bovary or Anna Karenina. The film industry They had the charge to clarify the moral ambiguity. Another stuffed shirt in the production code office, E.G. Doherty, was even more specific about what MGM should do. Doherty's memo explained the following. There should be developed in this story an attitude of compassion for Gloria, not one of glorification. The story should seem to indicate that she might have been a great woman if it were not for the fact that she was a sick one. The production code was incompatible with women's sexual agency. If a woman sought pleasure with multiple partners on screen, she must be evil, deviant, or sick. Hollywood had long been Janice-faced when it came to sexual themes. Production code censors dithered over the do's and don'ts and a possible affront to American morality, especially when it came to women's pictures. But the press agents and publicity departments were a different breed of film colony animal. Their job was to sell tickets and lure an audience. Rather than use the traditional large film premiere, one in New York and one in Los Angeles, followed by a national release, Publicists for Butterfield 8 took a different approach. They released the picture in a number of smaller cities for Thanksgiving uh, release when people had more time to catch the film. Instead of downplaying the sexual theme as the censors dictated, the press agents put life-sized cardboard cutouts of Elizabeth Taylor in a slip and a mink coat 
in theater lobbies. One of the more inspired campaigns for Butterfield 8 was created in the partnership with Ma Bell. The phone company created a tie-in which advertised their latest phones along with a gimmick for the picture's title. Butterfield 8 referred to an Upper East Side Manhattan telephone exchange. The publicity campaign installed special phones in theater lobbies and signs that encouraged patrons to ring BU-8. The calls were answered by cinema employees who read a script prepared by the studio. On one end of the line, an usher would describe, quote, Gloria, the most desirable woman in town, for the patron. The gimmick staged an escort service. It played on a very specific male fantasy that they could have women as sexy as Elizabeth Taylor if only they had the right number. It's too bad publicists didn't find a way to tap into the fantasies of women in the audience, where we would have liked to stab a man's foot with a high heel, or turn down bad dates, or nick a sumptuous mink coat. Publicists plastered pictures of Elizabeth and her cleavage-bearing slip all over newspapers, billboards, and magazines. The press for Butterfield 8 was a complete turnaround from what the media had printed for most of two or three years about Elizabeth Taylor. Imagine being called a whore, a homewrecker, a Jezebel, every day in blazing headlines for years. Elizabeth had been through the ringer with the press, battled the suits in MGM, filmed a picture she despised, then nearly died of pneumonia, had her throat slit open, and ultimately achieved validation with the Oscar for Best Actress. Sometimes a media scandal cost you an an Oscar, as it did for Susan Hayward in I'll Cry Tomorrow, which I talked about in the last episode. But sometimes the pendulum swings the other way, Fans had tired of the bad press Elizabeth received for nearly three years and rallied behind her. Gloria Wandress is the next generation Crystal Allen, without the messy encumbrance of marriage vows to a boring Wall Street type like Stephen Haynes. Gloria chooses the man. He doesn't do the picking. But instead of playing a shop girl at the perfume counter, like an earlier bad girl, Miss Wandress, as played by Elizabeth Taylor, models designer gear for nightclub photo ops. In John O'Hara's novel, set in 1931, there's a scene where two characters discuss a Walter Winchell column about what we would call first-generation influencers. Winchell described women in Manhattan who were paid to wear something fashionable and set trends. In the book, it's the Eugenie hat which first appeared on Greta Garbo, designed by Adrian in the picture Romance from 1930. Gloria is not a call girl or a sex worker in the novel or in the film, really. She might supplement her income with gifts from men, but she does not live off their money in the usual sense. She's libidinous, not commercial. Gloria's independence is what she values most in the world. No man dictates terms to her. For Gloria Wandress, men are accessories that decorate her upwardly mobile trajectory. She makes no concessions, except for the few that she makes for her mother's sake. 
Elizabeth Taylor earned the Oscar after the first scene of Butterfield 8. It has a more satisfying emotional arc from a woman's point of view than viewers will get to see for a long time. In many ways, this is the swan song of woman's pictures. In the opening scene, Elizabeth turns the dial from forlorn to fury. The sight of her stomping around a posh flat and a silk slip and stilettos on a bleak Sunday morning is as welcome as spring rain. Butterfield 8 introduced something fresh that remains so today. It's the way Elizabeth combines a woman's sexuality with rage that stands out. Elizabeth Taylor here is not sexually frustrated, gasping for it, as she was as Maggie the Cat. She's not pouty or sulking like Marilyn Monroe in Niagara or Gloria Graham in Human Desire. Elizabeth Taylor carries the torch from Jean Harlow. I see so many shades of Harlow in Taylor's performance, which owes itself to this pre-code sensibility. In Bombshell, for example, Harlow sneers, snarls, and snaps at men. She's heard it all before. Men take and take and never give. Gloria is the same. Gloria Wondrous has a libido that springboards from fury. She's no cat on a hot tin roof. She's a goddess avenger. Instead of a sword, she slices men up with a stiletto heel. Elizabeth Taylor, angry and a slip, radiates the interior life of so many modern women. The camera patiently waits for Elizabeth Taylor to wake up as the opening credits roll. Rumpled in bed, she gives us a portrait of stale disillusionment mixed with high glamour. In the smudge of a morning after, she wakes with pillow-crushed hair and runny eyeliner as she struggles to connect the dots of the who, what, where from the night before. Hung over and naked in bed, Liz wraps a sheet around her body like a sarong as she hunts for a cigarette. She fingers the stubs in the, um, the butts in the ashtray, not once, but twice. Then she settles for a long cigarillo, not her brand, and then hacks at the harsh tobacco. To soothe her burnt throat, she knocks back two fingers of scotch. In Butterfield 8, Elizabeth has a raunchy allure that we haven't seen since Marlena Dietrich reeled around a Bowery flophouse in Blonde Venus. She's dirty and raunchy, yet a high-gloss beauty. Torn in half on the floor is the satin brocade frock she wore the night before. Viewers don't need to have seen the sex to know it was good. The torn-up dress says everything. As the camera stays locked on the floor, Elizabeth drops the sheet and steps into her slip that was tossed in a heap next to the torn dress. The slip is cut much lower, and is far more risque than what she wore just previously in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. After she noses around the overstuffed bourgeois apartment and rinses her teeth with scotch, she gravitates to the wife's dressing room. Gloria Wondrous lives her life by clothes. She hovers over the wife's closet like a bee on fresh lavender. She goes straight for the fur. Gloria hugs a honey of a mink coat off the rail, 
but she chooses a more modest coat hanging next to it, wool with a snow leopard shawl collar. Gloria's coat selection tells viewers a lot about her character. She's not greedy. She's pragmatic. She can't very well leave the apartment wearing nothing but a slip. Rather than rifle through the woman's clothing for a dress, she takes the most expedient route to make an exit, a coat and the second best coat at that. But once she finds his note, $250, enough, Gloria is so angry she could spit the scotch in his face. How dare he insult her with a price tag? His offensive note makes Gloria chide herself for taking second best after all. After she scrolls a magnificent no sale in red lipstick on a tacky mirror, she rectifies her formerly modest coat choice. Gloria stomps back to the wife's dressing room in her heels, returns the cloth coat, and takes the mink coat instead. It's a sumptuous blend of chocolate mink pelts with that burnt sugar edging towards the seams. Then she takes a decanter of scotch after leaving a $20 bill to cover it and marches to the elevator. Gloria Wandress is too good for this joint. She's a perfect vision and a slip and mink coat, stilettos, and that crystal decanter of hooch under her arm. All of this on a Sunday morning. She is the ultimate sassmouth dame swagger. She had a wobbly start to her day, but she ramps it up to full-blown scorn. Damn him and his money. In a taxi, she promises a double tip to the driver for a cigarette. The cabbie obliges and then shouts abuse at the older couple who jaywalk in front of his checker cab. They are the upright citizens, probably on their way to Sunday services. Yet they need to clear out of the way for a hot party girl with a hangover. Have I mentioned I love this picture? The last thing Gloria or viewers want to see is Eddie Fisher on a high horse with a sermon about how tired he is of finding her on his doorstep, boozed up, burnt out, and ugly. Eddie seems unable to muster a real sense of disgust. He delivers the lines without feeling or emphasis. It's kind of strange that a man who took regular speed injections from Dr. Max Jacobson, whom Debbie referred to as Dr. Needles, lacks energy on screen. He's tepid when he needs to boil. Listen, I'm not going to take obvious pot shots at Eddie Fisher, mostly because he had the good sense not to try and compete with a goddess, and maybe because he was a poor urchin from my hometown. He so obviously doesn't mean what he says, and maybe that's the point. Gloria is drawn to Steve because he's safe and passive. He would never tear her dress in half or insult her with a wad of cash. Gloria holds the upper hand with him as she does with every man. When Gloria removes the mink and stands before him, defiant and a slip, it's a challenge to his manhood and his good intentions. It anticipates the scene Elizabeth Taylor has with Brando, years later in Reflections in a Golden Eye. It's the look that says, you're not man enough. 
She leaves the mink with Steve for safekeeping because no gal can go home to her mother wearing one without at least a proposal of marriage in tow. If the script is going to spend 90 minutes calling Elizabeth a no-good tramp, they had better bring in a so-called good girl to fit the dynamic that raged in the tabloids. Steve's girlfriend, Norma, played by Susan Oliver, fits the bill, and she even has the same hairstyle as Debbie Reynolds. Norma loans Gloria one of her suits because Steve asks her, but really, it gives her an opportunity to badmouth Gloria. Careful, she tells the woman wearing a slip and her boyfriend's jacket. The suit shocks easily. Norma had left pins on the skirt that stabbed Gloria like a little wishful thinking that her competition might turn into a poppet. Gloria returns to her mother's flat, looking respectable in Norma's suit, yet she endures more withering comments about her virtue. Her mother's friend, Mrs. Thurber, played by Betty Field, looks like she would sell her own mother if she had the chance to run about nightclubs with different men every night. All Gloria wants is her messages, a shower, and the chance to do her nails. Decor in the film presents the contrast between Mrs. Liggett and Gloria Wandress. Both have pink bathrooms, but the wife's is done in marble, while the single gal has to make do with pink tile. Finally, under a shampoo bonnet, Gloria cradles the pink princess phone and has a word with Liggett, played by Lawrence Harvey. Earlier in the day, Liggett had taken the train to the country to see his tightly wound society wife, played by Dina Merrill. She's the type of woman who wears a negligee with a Peter Pan collar, for God's sake. Husband and wife spend the afternoon skeet shooting, which is one of those inexplicable outdoorsy pursuits rich people take up. The shotguns move the plot forward by telling viewers that husband and wife communicate poorly, or only with occasional tense explosions. Whatever heat they have between them comes from the barrel of a gun rather than between the sheets. The whole day stretches out. The film prolongs the moment that they meet again, which is all you really care about. I suppose we need the po-faced blondes for contrast, but you really miss Elizabeth when she's not on screen. Cut to some seedy cocktail bar a place where money may not change hands outright, but the place has a fair rendezvous written all over it. It's the kind of place you meet and down a couple of drinks before you head off on the down low. Everything about the bar is down low. It's in the basement, the ceiling's low. It's filled with nothing but tobacco, smoke, and furtive groping. The scene in the bar where Gloria and Liggett meet after their lusty night is all the best foreplay. A battle of wills for supremacy. Liggett thinks he has the upper hand because of his wealth. He's so smug. Liggett calls her kid and dollface and baby. She replies, you must go to some very bad plays. His patter is cheap. Liggett oozes smarm and toxic self-regard. He's, sh- he's so sure of himself that he can buy a goddess like Gloria Wandress with something as common as a penthouse. He wants to know her price. Liggett tries to get tough and grabs her arm. 
Gloria responds by stabbing her spiked heel into Liggett's foot. You can hear an audible squelch as Gloria's stiletto pierces leather and digs into the tender white flesh between delicate bones. The sound of her heel is so violent, it sounds like a dagger in shiny patent leather. The way Lawrence Harvey's face looks stricken by surprise and pain is exquisite. If there's a better argument for high heels and their efficacy, I haven't read it. Gloria plants her stiletto like a flag of honor in his foot. She cannot let him win because she has everything to lose. In the battle between brute strength and style, the glamour puss wins. With scorn so pure, Gloria tells him, Mr. Liggett, put your assets away. She informs the upstart that she's had better offers and turn them down. Penthouses, yachts, real Van Goghs, the work. Gloria has her own wages and her own freedom, and that's what she wants most. She's as good as telling him to put his dick away. Businessmen like Liggett have their manhood mixed up with their their salary, their property, and stock portfolio, even if, in this case, it all belongs to the wife. After he recovers, he gets it. She picks the man. He doesn't pick her, and she drops him when she fancies without a parachute. As Gloria tells him more than once in this picture, you sent for me. I didn't send for you. She holds the cards. She's the one in control, and she'll leave when she wants. It's a thrilling declaration of sexual agency. Viewers see it again in the little gift she bestows. She gives him a gold cigarette lighter with BU8 engraved. It made me think of the time in Otto Preminger's um, memoir where he recalled getting a pair of gold cufflinks from Joan Crawford after they finished making Daisy Kenyon. Later, he attended a party where several other men wore the same cufflinks from Joan. In the same way, Gloria marks a man with a gold lighter, a personal yet anonymous token for one of the notches on her bedpost. During the climax, when Gloria confesses to her mother, played by Mildred Dunnock, you can read the scene a couple different ways. Elizabeth, as Gloria, declares, Face it, Mama, I was the slut of all time, to which Mrs. Wandress slaps her daughter across the face. Elizabeth is glorious, brazen, beautiful. It's fun, it's campy, it's tragic. But at the end of it, Gloria and Elizabeth are both allergic to shame, both on screen and in real life. She lived by her terms and by her desire and damn the rest. Helen Rose designed Elizabeth Taylor's wardrobe, which is a mix of sedate earth tones, lots of gorgeous browns and high necklines by day, and knee-length cocktail dresses and low necklines by evening. When she was only 15 years old, Helen Rose sketched designs for a Chicago costume company for 37 and a half cents an hour. The following year, when she was 16 years old, she took a job designing costumes for burlesque dancers at the Chez Pierre nightclub in Chicago for $50 a week. Perhaps working as a child 
in an adult industry was one reason that Helen Rose became fast friends with Elizabeth Taylor. Helen Rose first worked with Elizabeth um, in 1948 for A Date with Judy. When Helen Rose designed for Elizabeth in 1954 in The Last Time I Saw Paris, she was puzzled by three people who worked in the censors department in MGM who were known as the bust inspectors. The inspectors judged every piece of wardrobe lest any cleavage show and inflamed men in Joseph Breen's office. Helen Rose recalled that one slender woman in horn-rimmed glasses climbed up a ladder for a bird's-eye view of Elizabeth Taylor's décolletage, just to make sure her breasts were covered sufficiently. It's funny how quickly things change in Hollywood. Just five years after the bust inspectors stalked the set, Elizabeth Taylor sports ample cleavage in her morning-after slip ensemble for Butterfield 8. And the black chiffon number for the bar scene is nothing but a showcase for Elizabeth Taylor's breasts. Butterfield 8 was the last time she designed costumes for Elizabeth Taylor on film, but the two women had grown to be fast friends. Helen Rose was at Elizabeth's side during Mike Todd's funeral. Helen Rose had a windfall and set a fashion trend when she was asked by Giorgio's, a boutique in Beverly Hills, to design a variation of the dress Elizabeth wears when she first meets Lawrence Harvey in the cocktail bar. Instead of chiffon, Helen Rose adapted the original short frock in chiffon to one that was longer and done in jersey. Moss Mabry, who had done Lawrence Harvey's costumes for Butterfield 8, had told the boutique owners that the dress Helen Rose made for Elizabeth Taylor would look good on any woman. Elizabeth Taylor's third husband, Mike Todd, won her with passionate declarations of his love, precious gems, furs, and jet-setting. Every week, he gave her a dazzling new gift. But what might have been most persuasive of, of all in winning her was his promise that he would secure her release from Metro. Elizabeth Taylor was tired of feeling like she had a bunch of studio goons calling the shots. Mike promised her that she could make pictures on her own terms. One of the first things Mike Todd did to make Elizabeth feel safe and protected was to get her a new agent. Kurt Frings was a shark, a new breed of star agent who used ruthless tactics and inspired publicity campaigns to represent his clients. Kurt Frings' life story had already been immortalized in Hollywood after his wife, Ketty Frings, wrote a story about the former gigolo's attempt to enter the United States. Kurt Frings was played by Charles Boyer in the picture Hold Back the Dawn, released in 1941. Helen Rose remembered that after Elizabeth returned from her honeymoon with Mike, she invited her to the Beverly Hills Hotel where they were staying. Elizabeth turned to Dick Hanley, who was Mike Todd's press agent and right-hand man, and asked him to bring out the loot. Dick Hanley returned with a large paper bag which Elizabeth dumped out on the coffee table. The contents included a diamond and emerald tiara, a diamond flower pin, and assorted earrings and bracelets. 
The story sounds like the perfect way to sum up Mike Todd with his hard scrabble story, Born in Dire Poverty. He was a chancer running crap games in the schoolyard when he was only 12 years old. Before Mike Todd became a legendary producer in burlesque, then Broadway and Hollywood, he made a fortune in construction and then lost it. Mike Todd was a brown paper bag man, whether it had a liverwurst packed lunch or expensive baubles for his movie star wife. On the 22nd of March, 1958, Mike Todd died when the private jet he had named the Liz went down in a ball of fire in the New Mexico desert. They had been married only a year. Elizabeth was devastated. Her friends and Mike's inner circle kept watch. Helen Rose said that Elizabeth wandered around the house like a frightened fawn once she heard the news. Elizabeth didn't eat for three days. Each time she tried, she vomited. She wept in bed for days. At the same time as Mike's death, news came of Lana Turner's trouble with Johnny Stompanato. Even in her grief, Elizabeth thought of her friend and her friend's daughter, Cheryl. Elizabeth would frequently say, poor Lana. She took Lana's calls to offer some comfort when she had plenty of her own despair. Sidney Gwilaroff slept on the floor next to Elizabeth's de- bed for three days and nights so he could hold her hand when she called out for Mike. Sidney tossed bottles of tranquilizers and sleeping pills when it seemed like Elizabeth entered the danger zone mixing tablets with booze. The press fed on Elizabeth's grief. Newspapers and magazines were filled with stories about the stricken widow who was bereft without her protector. In early September 1958, a New York paper ran a story about an affair between Elizabeth and Eddie Fisher. It was about five months after Mike had died. Debbie Reynolds' response was swift and direct. It wasn't true, she declared. Debbie was shocked by the accusation that anything was going on between her husband and Elizabeth. Soon after, Elizabeth protested that they were just friends. Hedda Hopper took the news as a slap in the face. From Hedda's point of view, she was the first person to interview Elizabeth Taylor when she was on the set of Lassie Come Home. Gossip columnists of Hedda's magnitude often took credit for making a star. Adela Roger St. John, for example, claimed Clark Gable. Luella Parsons was Susan Hayward's biggest champion, and Hedda claimed Elizabeth Taylor as her own. Protocol for special relationships with the press were supposed to include exclusives, and Elizabeth initially denied the rumors about a romance with Eddie when Hedda had asked. Once the story about Eddie and Liz ran in the New York Daily News, and rumors spread that they had checked into Grossinger's, the Catskills Resort, where Eddie had once worked and later married Debbie, Hedda wanted answers. The first chapter of Hedda Hopper's memoir dives right into the Liz-Eddie-Debbie love scandal. Hedda rang Elizabeth and demanded the truth. Then she printed a synopsis of their conversation, and all hell broke loose. Hedda's column started a snowball effect of bad press for Elizabeth Taylor. Hedda claimed that Elizabeth brazenly admitted to be carrying on a relationship with Eddie Fisher. 
had quoted Elizabeth as saying, Mike's dead and I'm alive. And then the kicker, the line that Hedda did not print when Elizabeth had supposedly said, what do you expect me to do? Sleep alone? In Sidney Gwilaroff's account of the tabloid scandal, Elizabeth protested Hedda's column. She told him that Hedda simply took a speech she gave in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, the one about Skipper's dead and I'm alive. Hedda could have easily made up the comments. The firestorm that followed would have made it impossible for Elizabeth to deny. Hedda berated her in a, in a column as though Elizabeth were a naughty child. Hedda wrote, Elizabeth, you'll probably hate me for the rest of your life for this, but I can't help it. I'm afraid you've lost all control over reason. Remember the nights you used to call me at two and three in the morning when you were having a nightmare? You had to talk to somebody and I let you talk your heart out. What you've just told me bears not the slightest resemblance to that girl. Where, or oh where has she gone? Hedda's disapproval is laced with name-dropping and a cringeworthy boast about her elite status as a confidant to the star. The idea that if you take someone's calls in the middle of night terrors that they owe you is shameful. Hedda's outrage fueled a backlash against Taylor, but let's be clear— Hedda was no doubt motivated by a young actress who dared to flip the script that she had written. Less a question of morality, Hedda rankled at the idea that what she thought was of little importance. Hedda's attack was really about her own loss of power. Who could blame Elizabeth for refusing the widow weeds and the hair shirt the columnist had laid out for her? No doubt frazzled in the wake of her husband's death, the lonely mother of three saddled with debts and uncertainty, and in the middle of of filming a high-stakes production, did a human thing and reached out to Eddie Fisher for comfort. She didn't have to reach far. Eddie had been circling like a hawk, waiting for the opportunity. As Carrie Fisher put it, he consoled Elizabeth with his penis. The strain of stardom was so great for Elizabeth, and the standards were impossibly high. What did they expect a beautiful young woman to do? The tabloids pitted two talented women against each other in a little virgin whore psychodrama. Neither Elizabeth nor Debbie Reynolds deserved it. The scandal leveraged Hedda Hopper's influence. Each letter that condemned the homewrecker was self-validation for Hedda Hopper. She used the media frenzy as a threat to every other star. Look what I can do to you. Hedda's outrage was meant to put the film colony on notice. Studios, producers, and contract players. I can use publicity against you if I so choose. Butterfield 8 was the last picture that Elizabeth Taylor owed to Metro on her contract. While Mike was still alive, she believed him when he told her that Cat on a Hot Tin Roof would be her last picture. Then she could leave the studio and select her own roles in a picture he produced. If she wanted to do Cleopatra for Walter Wanger and receive a landmark $1 million salary, she had to fulfill her obligations to Metro. The studio held her to it. If Elizabeth refused Butterfield 8, they would put her on suspension, which could prevent her from working for two years. 
she took the $125,000 salary plus $3,000 a week for expenses and a $300 a week salary for her mother. She also insisted on a part for Eddie Fisher that was originally earmarked for David Jansen. Producer Pandro Berman knew that she despised the project, but he consoled Elizabeth with a prediction that she would win the Oscar for Best Actress. On location in New York City, Elizabeth was relieved to have a break from the same studio routine she had had for nearly 18 years. She kept Helen Rose waiting for three weeks on costume fittings. The cast were taken out to a soundstage in the Bronx, each day by limo. Reportedly, they had to make a lot of noise in the morning to clear away the rats. Eventually weary of the cold and the rats, the production moved back to the studio in Hollywood. During the screening in MGM, Elizabeth and Eddie sipped scorpions from Trader Vic's, a potent mix of rum, brandy, and juice from large fish fishbowl glasses. Elizabeth hurled her glass at the screen when the credits rolled. Then she marched to Pandro Berman's office and wrote no sale on his door in lipstick. Elizabeth didn't sleepwalk through the part. She took notes and borrowed some of Gloria's chutzpah. I hope at some point she tried the stiletto treatment on some producer's foot. After production wrapped, Elizabeth and Eddie flew to London so she could get started on Cleopatra. Soon after, she became sick and then developed pneumonia. Under the care of a doctor and nurse, she slept under an oxygen tent in her room at the Dorchester Hotel. One night, Elizabeth's nurse saw that her patient had turned blue. Elizabeth's breathing was compromised by an infection. She was rushed to the London clinic. Eddie noted that Elizabeth asked for lip gloss before she was wheeled into emergency care. He presented it as though she wasn't really that sick, but those of us who know how studio training worked know it was a sign that even on your deathbed, you have to act like an MGM star. You put your lipstick on. Physicians in the London Clinic said her condition was grave, so grave, in fact, that they prescribed sedatives for her producer, Walter Wanger. He had everything riding on Cleopatra, and if his star died, he was in big trouble. Vigils were held outside the clinic and in Hollywood. Once doctors performed a tracheotomy, Elizabeth improved. She was eventually nominated for Best Actress, along with Deborah Carr for The Sundowners, Shirley MacLaine for The Apartment, Greer Garson for Sunrise at Campobello, Emelina Mercouri for Never on Sunday. Glibly, Shirley MacLaine quipped, I lost to a tracheotomy. But really, it was no contest. Elizabeth Taylor earned that Oscar. I knew little about Lawrence Harvey before reading a biography for this episode. Mostly I knew the story about how Barbara Stanwyck made him cry for a lack of professionalism when he returned late from lunch, visibly intoxicated, on the set of Walk on the Wild Side. But Harvey was really interesting. He was from a, a Jewish-Lithuanian family who emigrated to South Africa when he was a boy. I had him pegged for another smarmy Brit, but apparently Harvey acquired a BBC accent when he studied at RADA, 
where he lived in a little attic hovel, living on toast, jam, stale buns, and tea. When it came time for a stage name, he settled on Harvey for a surname while he stood in front of a Harvey Nichols sign in London. Harvey was bisexual. In the early 1950s, he loved to shock people by turning up at parties with his arm around a man or a woman. He spent money like it was day-old bread. He created a myth that he was Russian, with the pet name of Larushka, to justify his extravagant taste mixed with peasant manners, such as when he liked to shock an actress by gnawing on chicken bones in a restaurant. Harvey was fastidious, obsessed with clothes, and I admire him for it. He wanted style and flash and to stand out. He drank Puy Fousse by day and vodka at night. He spurned Hollywood on more than one occasion to do a season in Stratford. He had a thing for older women. He had affairs with Hermione Baddeley when he was in his early 20s and she was mid-40s. Around 1957, he had an affair with Greer Garson, who gifted him with a pair of yellow slippers trimmed with white fur. He boasted of them. His second wife was Joan Cohn, the widow of Columbia mogul Harry Cohn. Harvey adored Elizabeth Taylor. They remained close friends until he died tragically young from stomach cancer when he was only 45 years old. Butterfield 8 was adapted from John O'Hara's novel, published in 1935. O'Hara based the character Gloria Wandress on the real-life star Faithful. From the time Star was 11 years old, she was sexually assaulted by her mother's cousin. The man, Andrew James Peters, had served in Woodrow Wilson's cabinet in the Treasury and had once been elected mayor of Boston. He gave Star ether and then molested her. When Star was 25, her drowned body washed up on the beach in Long Island. Her case dominated headlines for weeks. Gloria Vanderbilt remained fascinated with Star Faithful and wrote a fictionalized version of her diary. The tabloids had printed excerpts of Star's diary, claiming she had had 19 lovers in 10 years. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? Mary Astor's Purple Diary scandal occupied the front page of every newspaper during the, the summer of 1936, and I told you about that in a podcast episode on Dodsworth. Thanks for listening. The following books helped me to write the episode. How to Be a Movie Star, Elizabeth Taylor in Hollywood by William J. Mann. Liz, an intimate biography of Elizabeth Taylor by C. David Heyman. The Accidental Feminist, how Elizabeth Taylor raised our consciousness and we were too distracted by her beauty to notice by M.G. Lord. The Whole Truth and Nothing But by Hedda Hopper and James Brew. Unsinkable, a memoir by Debbie Reynolds and Dorian Hannaway. Reach for the Top, The Turbulent Life of Lawrence Harvey by Anna Sinai. Just Make Them Beautiful, The Many Worlds of a Designing Woman by Helen Rose. Crowning Glory, Reflections of Hollywood's Favorite Confidant by Sidney Gwilaroff. Join me next time for episode 77 when I talk about Joan Crawford, and No More Ladies from 1935. If you're enjoying the podcast, why not leave a nice review on iTunes? Thanks very much.
Bye.